Welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet, and today we're going to talk about demonic activity in the world today. And uh, what brings up the topic in my mind is reading Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. I just started reading that yesterday after a great deal of nagging from uh, a cousin of mine, Chris Blair. Uh, also, I think I think our pastor, Butch Hart, had also recommended it uh, a couple of times. I, there's got to be at least three or four people total that had said it was a really great book who have asked, hey, have you ever read any Frank Peretti? No, I haven't. Oh, you really should. You'd love it. And, uh, you know, I kept hearing that. And uh, then, you know, inevitably, I would hear this just as I had downloaded a brand new book. And I typically like to download uh, 20, 30, 40 hour books as a rule. 10 hours is kind of a minimum. Uh, And so then, you know, it might take me several weeks to to finish a a new book if I'm just starting it when somebody recommends uh, that I go read Frank Peretti or whatever else. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I, I kept forgetting, right? Because by the time I would finish that book, I'd forget that they had recommended it. Then I'd go back to audible, just, you know, Oh, now what do I want to listen to? And, uh, so anyway, this time around, uh, I, I ended up downloading this book before I, uh, you know, finished two other books that I just started this past week. Uh, one of them is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, it's an actual, It's not a book about Bonhoeffer. It's a book by Bonhoeffer, so that's exciting. I've, I've read a, a biography of his, so this will actually be uh, you know, what, what he had to say in his own words. So that's, that's cool. Uh, also started a book, Life by Design. It's written by two Stanford professors of design and uh, they just talk about you know how you can be intentional with your life you know what do you want out of life and then you know look at the problems you know make sure they're realistic and uh you know they're they're things you could actually tackle they're not things like the law of gravity that you're not going to be able to probably do anything about but uh you know design your life and so i i had uh posted to facebook that i was reading the Bonhoeffer book, and then I was reading this Design Your Life book, and then my cousin Chris commented again. He's like, yep, that's still not Frank Peretti. <laughs> so why are you not reading Frank Peretti? And uh, <laughs> I, I went ahead and, and uh, oh, I relented. <laughs> I gave in, and uh, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll just go. I'll download it now, and then maybe I'll just listen to three books at the same time. I had an extra credit I hadn't used, and uh, you know I'll just I'll, I'll get through the three, just cycle through them depending on what mood I'm in for the day. Um, so anyway, started that book just yesterday, and uh, I'm only maybe four chapters in, three or four chapters in out of forty-two, but uh, really, really good so far. Um, kind of an interesting story. It's fiction, but it's said in more or less modern day. I think Peretti may have written this, you know, several decades ago. And so, you know, at that time 
it uh, America was a little bit more of a wholesome place, maybe, and uh, more predominantly Christian. Uh, Christianity was more of a mainstream thing, and it was more more cool. It was po- more popular to be a Christian in public. These days, uh, the tide is turning and has turned, and being an Orthodox Christian and believing what the Bible actually says, and then actually saying or doing what the Bible says publicly uh, is uh, not nearly so cool. Uh, it can get you into to big trouble. Um, you know, that's more the historical norm across uh, the world, uh, if you have the long view. Uh, but, uh, you know, at least in, in Peretti's uh, context, when he was writing it, I think Christianity was a little bit more in vogue. Uh, you know, but he writes this book. It's about this kind of sleepy little town. And uh, essentially, there's, there is a spiritual war going on over the lives of the individual people and over the fate of this town. And and you as the reader, or me as the reader, at least so far, uh, don't know exactly why the angels and the demons have decided that this is an important, meaningful place. It's just a sleepy little town. Why, you know, who cares about, uh, you know, Mayberry? <laughs> I mean, why, why would uh, Satan show up in Mayberry uh, to flip that? Uh, so that's not yet apparent. I'm just listening, and and uh, you know, as it becomes more clear, then uh, and maybe I'll know. But you know, for some reason, the, the the forces of evil are set up there, and they're trying to work within various spheres of power and uh, influence in the community, and trying to oust anything that's really good or or true, trying to destroy the town. Uh, but uh, then, you know, there's there's angels as well. They've shown up, and they're observing. They're kind of waiting in the wings, if you will, if you'll pardon the the pun. And uh, and there's just kind of a tension that's building so far in the book, where you, you you they cut back and forth. You know, the one scene they'll have the angels discussing what's going on, and the next scene you'll have the demons discussing what's going on, and then. You've got the human characters who are interacting with one another, but they don't see the the angels and the demons. Uh, you know, sometimes they're feeling something. Something is happening, and they can't quite put their finger on it. They don't understand why it is they suddenly feel so oppressed. Why do they feel like you know so tired and so terrified and so heavy and so despairing? And you know, and and then they're interacting, you know, the the at least what appear to be the two main characters, the two main protagonists so far, uh, a young pastor and uh, a, a, an editor of the local newspaper who's just recently bought the newspaper. He's new in town. They're kind of the good guys, and uh, they're they're the focus of the demonic attack, uh, at least again so far. Because they, you know, if they use their influence for good, then, boy, howdy, it's going to make it a lot harder for the demons to do their job. 
uh, in in taking over this town and having a stronghold there. You know, if if they were to to wake everyone up to what's good and what's true and rouse them from their stupor and their slumber. Uh, you know, if men were to turn their hearts to God and call out in Jesus' name and rebuke the forces of evil in Jesus' name, well, that would mess up the whole plan uh, that the forces of evil have uh, for this little town. And I don't remember the name of the town. It just kind of, as it's described, it kind of reminds me of a, a Mayberry-esque town. Yet, I mean, instead of having an Andy Griffith kind of a sheriff, uh, the, the sheriff, so far, he's just, it's kind of, nothing's outright explicitly stated. I think it speaks well of Peretti's uh, skill as a writer that uh, there's a great deal that's communicated by implication, subtly shown, not told. You're shown what kind of a character uh, the, the heroes are kind of a character the angels and the demons are you're shown what kind of a character the sheriff is and he is uh, looking crooked he is looking like he is shady and uh, and he is on the side of, of evil they've they've got a firm grip around him uh, and instead of uh, being on the side of justice and doing you know as Romans 13 says you know the the, the governing official, uh, is a minister of God. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He, he is there to punish the evildoer and uh, to do good to those who do good. You know, but but if he gets you know in the clutches of uh, evil and there and, and, and Satan is able to fill his heart with malice, with selfishness, with uh, lust for dishonest gain, for power. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of, of a lot of bad stuff that can happen, um, both because the law enforcement that that minister of God is turning a blind eye to it and not putting a stop to it, not confronting it, as is his job, his his responsibility, his duty. Uh, or even scarier still, you could have uh, law enforcement then become the thing, uh, what goes bump in the night and is, you know, oppressing and, uh, harming, you know, and then, then who is there to save you, but God and his angels and, uh, truth and goodness and, and all that. But, uh, you know, I, I'm really struck. There's, there's one conversation early on. It's uh, between this local sheriff and uh, the editor of the newspaper because one of the reporters for the local newspaper has just found herself, you know, spending a night in jail. Uh, and she had snapped some pictures of the sheriff with some kind of seedy looking characters in a dark corner. Yeah, some people that seem a little bit disreputable. And this reporter, I mean, she's there. She's trying to cover a different story. It's some festival that's in town. And she's actually trying to do a story on prostitutes, all these prostitutes that uh, you know show up when it's, it's time for this annual festival. And so she's in the process of trying to, you know, take pictures of people that are at the festival and these prostitutes and, you know, just interviewing and everything. And then she sees... The sheriff and she sees another local pastor 
uh, for a, kind of a big church in town. And she sees some kind of just weird, just kind of, you know, shady looking people back behind the stands and takes a picture. And then next thing she knows, she's being arrested, thrown in jail. Uh, the, the police aren't listening as she's uh, trying to explain that she is a member of the press. She's not one of the prostitutes that they were all, you know, arresting with her. She was talking with, they don't want to see her uh, identification that she is a journalist. They don't want to listen to her. Uh, they take her camera and, uh, you know, obviously, I, and I, I don't want to give too much away. It's still early in the book. I don't think it's going to be a huge spoiler. They destroy these pictures that she had gotten of the sheriff with these disreputable, shady people. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a perversion of justice. It's dishonest. Uh, I was just talking yesterday in my episode for this podcast about truth and, and lying, dishonesty, bearing false witness, and just how serious of a, a crime bearing false witness is. And it is it is very serious. Uh, it is it's theft, right? If you falsely accuse someone, if you lie, you, you misrepresent the facts. Uh, you are perpetrating injustice, if you're saying things that are going to get somebody punished, who should not be punished, who's innocent, uh, then you are uh, guilty. Guilty. Uh, I, I should have looked up uh, the reference and, and read it before I started recording here, but uh, you know, I was just recently talking with one of my wife's cousins, uh, Josh Duff from Nebraska, about... Uh, the Old Testament law, and how much of the Old Testament law should be um, prescriptive, if you will, uh, for our modern legal system. Uh, you know, say hypothetically, you know, imagine a scenario in which you're plopped on a desert island and you're allowed to just draft a constitution, write up the laws. You're going to decide what the rules are for the community that everybody's going to live according to. And, you know, where do you look for inspiration? You know, would you look to the Ten Commandments? That, that seems like a, a pretty good start. You know, don't murder. Don't bear false witness. Don't steal. Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not have any other gods before me. Uh, you know, maybe you could make those your, your kind of uh, framework. And then everything else you just kind of build around the Ten Commandments. Well, you could also look, there's there's more to the law than just the Ten Commandments. There's also other laws that uh, give clarification and they expand on those. They uh, also give exceptions too. And they say, you know, if, if someone is found doing this, then they get this punishment unless this and, you know, and then everything has to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses and they have to be reputable witnesses. You can't just pick uh, some some drug dealer uh, who has uh, a thousand reasons to lie to divert attention away from themselves, and so they're falsely accusing whoever it is that uh, is trying to, you know, hold them accountable. Um, you know, uh, so I was just recently discussing this with with Josh, though, and, and he pointed out that you know in in the Old Testament to falsely accuse someone. Uh, of something that uh, you know would would get them the death penalty, you, the penalty for false accusations was the death penalty. 
because essentially it's a, it's attempted murder, right? Um, you know, if you if you wrongly convict somebody, I mean, you think think to yourself, and he's got some good points. I'm still trying to mull it over. Uh, and this happens, believe it or not, for those that are familiar with me, this happens from time to time where an idea is so profound and uh, has, has so many implications. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna question. I'm gonna you know bring up arguments against. I'm gonna disagree with it. I'm gonna ask a, a million questions until I've exhausted the person I'm talking with. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to admit that you were right about anything until I've give, had some time to think about it. Um, you know, in this case, I I'm still mulling it over, still considering what it is that Josh is as uh, his his perspective on the Old Testament law, how much should be applicable, uh, and in what ways. But, uh, you know, that, that brings up a, a good point, right? Uh, you know, a false accusation against somebody uh, is an injustice. And, and as he said, too, I mean, if you're a private citizen and you go over to your neighbor's house and you slap some handcuffs on him and you put him back, you know, bring him back to your house and throw him in a cage. That's kidnapping, right? You're not allowed to do that. Now the government, uh, for some reason is allowed to do that and we don't call it kidnapping. And why don't we call it kidnapping? Well, we don't call it kidnapping because I think partly we're just, we don't ever think about it. Right. Uh, well, what happens if, if somebody is uh, arrested on false charges, that they're, they're not actually guilty? What if the authorities know they're not guilty and they arrest them anyways just because they need to get them off the street, get them out of the way? We need to hold you so that you don't get at the truth. You don't do this thing that the powers that be have decided is inconvenient to them, that might shed light on them, etc. Is that just just because they're law enforcement are they allowed to just arrest people for no reason for no justification to make stuff up uh, to bring false charges against somebody because they're trying to uh, get something you know they're I'll, I'll arrest you I'll come up with an excuse then we're gonna investigate you then we'll find justification for why we did this, even though we don't have any right now. Uh, that's unconstitutional for one. Now, the reason it's unconstitutional is because it's an injustice, right? That is that is corruption. That is tyranny. Uh, it is absolutely unacceptable. And don't be uh, confused about that. Don't be unclear. Get that straight in your mind. That is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, but that's you know that's what's portrayed in uh, this book so far is the this reporter she gets arrested thrown in jail for the night because she's taken a picture uh, that the the local sheriff does not want getting around he doesn't want to be seen or known to have been seen and associating with these people for some reason which is not clear uh, yet in the in the narrative. Uh, but what is clear is something nefarious. He uh, is corrupt. Uh, you know, 
he, he should not be using his power like that. And then he's dishonest about it and acts like it was a big misunderstanding, even though he very clearly saw the reporter, even though the, the reporter's pictures are destroyed when she gets her camera back. So you know that that was what it was actually about. And then he has this meeting with the editor where he's intimidating him. It's very clear he's threatening him, but he's not threatening him overtly. It's not like, if you don't back off play nice, I'm going to destroy you. That's not exactly what he says. But he talks about the last editor of the paper and how he just wasn't sensitive to the needs of this community. And he was just really, he was not uh, being nice. And uh, it's really unfortunate. You know, I, I hated to see him destroy himself, but uh, he ended up molesting this little girl. And uh, I told him if he just left the community quietly, we wouldn't press charges. We wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't go any further than that criminally. And he, he agreed to leave, but he, he was ruined. His name was ruined. His reputation was ruined. That's not what you want, right? Ooh, that's a threat, right? We all recognize that as a threat. That's not, you know, you, you don't say that uh, in that way, in that context, except as a threat. Uh, and even if you, even if all that stuff was true, you wouldn't say that in that context because you, you would know as the sheriff, if you have any sense whatsoever, you would know that was going to be taken as a threat <laughs> but you know meanwhile behind the scenes you know and i don't know yet with the sheriff how much the demons are involved with him but you've got the demons you know trying to grip take hold of this editor this new editor for the local paper uh trying to attack him and this young pastor in the middle of the night right coming and filling their homes and then they wake up from these nightmares with a sense of just absolute panic and dread. They don't know why. They feel like someone's in the house. And then you know, they go out to confront and then they get attacked, you know, physically and emotionally and spiritually attacked by these demons. And the way that it's all written, I, I would highly recommend, you know, before I go ahead and give away the entire book, uh, I would recommend you go read it if you've never read it before. It's really, it's not just an interesting subject because you can have interesting subjects that then bad writing ruins, right? Uh, it's like steak is wonderful unless you burn it uh, or if you undercook it or if you were to pour uh, an entire shaker of salt all over a steak, uh, you would ruin it. I mean, it, it, steak is lovely, but it can be prepared poorly and presented poorly and then it's nasty. Uh, you know, this is an interesting subject and it's also well presented. I highly recommend it so far. And I, I doubt highly that I will rescind my recommendation for anybody that likes fiction, who's interested in the topic of spiritual warfare, start it, read it. Uh, let me know what you think. But, uh, you know, moving on from that, uh, there is a passage that comes to mind with this topic. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus as he's just he's wrapping up this epistle. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. And I think that's where the uh, <laughs> title for Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, comes from, by the way. <clears throat> against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, cool. <laughs> uh, thanks, Paul. Uh, really encouraging there. Uh, and me as a man... Please spare me the pastels and the potpourri. Uh, give me imagery of war and of battle. You have my attention. Uh, you know, potpourri and pastel colors and doilies and all that. Uh, probably super great for the ladies' Bible study that you like to attend. Uh, for your grandmother with her old-time religion. You know, if that's how she wants to decorate the church, then super fantastic for her. There's churches all over the all over America that are decorated that way, and that's the imagery and that's the persona that they uh, choose and they prefer, uh, and that's why a lot of men don't feel comfortable in church and they won't come. Uh, that guess what? I mean, you make it into an old lady's parlor, and uh, and it's all feminine. And, uh, and the men, all of a sudden, they feel like they've, they've walked into the ladies' uh, restroom. <laughs> they feel out of place. Oh, I, I missed the sign. It looked like the men's room. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll leave now. Uh, and then they go somewhere else. They go sit in front of the TV and watch football because that feels manly, right? Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's a topic for another day to explore further later. Uh, this, you know, I, if it were up to me, we would decorate churches with <laughs> armor, <laughs> hang suits of armor on the, the walls. Uh, let's hang some, some shields and spears and swords, uh, you know, helmets, uh, battle flags, things like that. That sounds awesome. That is the kind of church I could see men coming to that would make headlines all over the place. People would lose their minds if that was the way that we were decorating our churches, like castles, like barracks, uh, not like tea time, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Paul writes here, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'll note, I'm not an expert on this. Um, I have read and listened to and watched a few resources put out by others who uh, are very attentive to the, the spiritual warfare thing. And uh, I'm inclined uh, to defer to their uh, judgment or their uh, assessments. Um, I have, I don't know if this is the case or if everybody agrees with this, but, uh, you know, where Paul refers to rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, uh, you know, there's some who say that that is a, each of those are ranks of angels, fallen angels. Uh, you know, a little bit of backstory on the biblical narrative is you have <clears throat> this war in heaven that happens at one point. And we're not 100% sure from the, the text, from the Bible, uh, exactly where in the timeline of things this happened, when this happened. We just are told that it happened. But there was a war in heaven. Uh, Lucifer, who was an angel, and, and all of the demons were angels, so far as I know. They, uh, you know, Lucifer, he was an angel. He was a very glorious angel. Uh, he was supposed to be the one that was, I guess, shepherding or caring for God's glory. And he became conceited and puffed up at a certain point. And said to himself, you know, I I should set my throne higher than God's. I I will reign. And so then he he wanted to be basically worshipped instead of God. And then God would bow to him. Everybody would look to him. He he started wanting some of that glory he was shepherding for God for himself. And so God's not a fool. He won't be mocked. Uh, you know, Lucifer reaped what he sowed. Uh, I believe it was a third of heaven ended up rebelling, taking Lucifer's side. So God, you know, and, and a little bit of context there, uh, <clears throat> mankind, human, uh, men and women, we are not the only beings that, uh, God created. So we've got the animals, uh, we've got all these, these mammals and reptiles and, bugs and fish and birds and, and all that stuff. And then you've got human beings. We're separate. We are not just another animal. Genesis tells us God created us in his image. Uh, so that makes us special and unique. God takes a special uh, effort in creating special attention in creating Adam. And then he makes Eve out of a rib of Adam's. But besides just humanity, <clears throat> there's also another class of beings, and they are spiritual beings that God has made, uh, including angels. You know, I think angels is just one term or uh, type of spiritual being that God has made, or that may maybe uh, we could think of it as a, a role. I think angel actually... Uh, is it means messenger you know in some of these spiritual beings god made as 
messengers. And so they, de they deliver messages, you know, they go and they, they tell somebody what God wanted them to say. And, uh, you know, some of them are guards and some of them, uh, you know, they, they just, they have different roles. I'm not, again, I'm not an expert on this, but, uh, it makes sense that God, you know, has created spiritual beings to, you know, help administer, uh, his creation, the universe, to look over the affairs of men, uh, to go and, and do his bidding, to run his errands, etc. And so, and so God's not uh, lonesome. So, you know, for some reason, it pleased him to make humanity. It pleased him to create the earth, uh, the animals, and all that. And uh, he enjoys. He has some purpose for interacting with us. He enjoys that. It pleases him. And so that's why we're here. So also the angels, uh, and who can pretend to know all of the ins and outs <clears throat> of why he made spiritual beings uh, that are at least uh, initially they're, they're above us in power and position. And so they can go and talk with God, and they do. You know, the book of Job opens with, uh, quote unquote, the sons of God uh, coming before Lord Most High, Yahweh God, is you know, his name is Yahweh. Uh, you know, they come before him to kind of give an account, to give a report, to talk. There's an uh, there's a gathering of the assembly of the spiritual beings, and God calls for it, and, and He presides over it. He is not an equal. He is uh, the the uh, infinite one, right? We are finite. He is infinite. Even the angels, even though they're, they're more powerful than we are, they have more knowledge, they have more power, more authority, uh, outside of the context of Jesus anyways. Uh, God is infinite. He rules and reigns over the angels and us alike. But, you know, the book of Job starts with all these spiritual beings coming before God. And they're going to give an account. And God has a, an interaction with Satan. Satan is a, a according to, to one book that I read, it's actually a title. It means uh, adversary, or or you could think of it as being uh, like a prosecuting attorney. And so, you know, Satan is kind of putting Job uh, in the uh, uh, defendant. Uh, seat. And so he's kind of bringing charges, bringing an accusation. The scriptures say Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So he's charging that Job only loves God for the good things that God does. And if God would only withdraw his protection, then Job would cease to be faithful. He would curse God. And, uh, and so there, there's this interaction. And we see that throughout the biblical text. Uh, the Bible is not a naturalistic book. It is not. Uh, our modern minds have a hard time wrapping around the supernatural aspects of the Bible. And it's not enough to just jump fast forward to the New Testament where you've got a virgin birth. You've got angels appearing to Joseph and Mary, giving them uh, a message, hey, you're going to have a child. What? I'm a virgin. Yep. That's right. With God, this is impossible. Right, with 
With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You're going to have a baby, even though you're a virgin. That's going to fulfill prophecy. Congratulations. Uh, you know, Joseph, he's going to not take Mary to be his wife when he finds out she's pregnant because he knows he's not the father. They haven't done anything. Uh, she's betrothed to him, so obviously she's been unfaithful and uh, been fooling around with another guy. He's upset about, about that, and I mean, understandably so. Uh, your, your girl has been kind of, you know, doing stuff behind your back and that's not, he doesn't, he's not about that. So he's going to put her away quietly though. He's a gentleman. He's not going to destroy her. He could, he's not going to, uh, he's going to just divorce her quietly. The angel appears to Joseph and says, no, 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 no. It's okay to take her as a wife. She, she's been a good girl. The baby that she's pregnant with is God's baby. This is. Uh, the Messiah who was promised. And, uh, and and please take her as your wife. Raise this child as your own. Joseph says, okay. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, he also gets warned in a dream when Herod is on the warpath. Uh, I think, you know, demonically motivated to murder Jesus. You know, the forces of evil don't want the son of God coming into the mix and, uh, you know, casting them out, healing the sick, bringing truth, bringing hope. The forces of evil want to destroy mankind because mankind is, is made in God's image and, and Satan is at war with God and hates God. You know, now he's all twisted and, and contorted from all this, you know, being separated from God's glory. He's been you know, thrown down, hurled down to earth uh, and, and kicked out of heaven and all that for, for, for getting ahead of himself, getting a little too big for his britches. And so now he wants to destroy mankind, get mankind to flip over to his side too. You know, I think Satan is, is imagining, I, I could be wrong, but I, I've heard other people speculate along similar, similar lines that uh, his goal is to destroy and to try and, and convert to his side of things, to come over onto his side of the rebellion against God. Hey, we can win. Yeah, yeah. If we just get enough people, you know, if you, if you have a, a majority in the House and Senate and, uh, you know, <laughs> If the president signs off on it, or if uh, the UN signs off on it, or whatever, we can win this. We can overturn and veto God's laws, his his jurisdiction. We could just declare him dead, say that he has no authority here, right? You know, that's Satan talking. That's and Satan's the father of lies. Uh, he's where that crap comes from. But uh, you know, you you can't just skip forward in the biblical narrative to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and and then you you only see that the miracles in the New Testament that Jesus does you only see the resurrection uh, from the dead and then you you know okay that's that's it no there's there's more to it right there's angels coming and going and in the mix there's demons coming and going and in the mix in the Old Testament as well. And in the Old Testament, <clears throat> I mean, it starts in the garden. Uh, you've got the serpent tempting Eve and saying, Hath God really said? 
Did God really say that in the day that you eat of that fruit that you will surely die? You surely will not die. You know, God's just afraid you're going to become like him. Knowing good and evil. That's why he, he actually is just afraid. God's just insecure about you becoming a threat. Yeah, that, that fruit's really good. You should you should take a look at it. And uh, you know, and you fast forward again, and you've got uh, the Old Testament narrative. You've got God's chosen people being saved from corruption. Uh, I haven't finished reading the Book of Enoch. It's uh, not part of the Protestant canon scriptures. Uh, it is referred to, or things from it are referred to in the scriptures, which gives credibility to it being authoritative or it having something to say that we should pay attention to. Uh, but the book of Enoch, uh, you know, my, my fifth son, his name is Enoch Theophilus. Uh, and Enoch is one of, if you'll uh, note those who are biblically literate, Enoch's one of two men who do not die in the Bible. Uh, you know, they, he, he lives for 365 years, which is kind of cool. It can't be an accident. He lives for the same number of years that there are days in a year. But, uh, you know, and then he, he doesn't die, but he was no more on the earth because God took him. And he walked with God. He had fellowship with God. Enoch and God had a special relationship. And the book of Enoch is about uh, God getting fed up with the angels, the fallen angels. They, they have been given jobs to do. They've been uh, given certain authority, certain knowledge, certain power. And, you know, I, I think these are the angels that get kicked out of heaven for being on the side of Lucifer. And they come down to earth. And they started interacting with humanity. And I think because they had a similar uh, attitude to Lucifer, and they wanted also to be worshipped like Lucifer did in place of God, they start interacting with humanity, the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, as uh, C.S. Lewis would put it in Narnia. They start interacting, and... You know, you just imagine the conversation that's happening in, in a thousand different ways and places and times with people. You know, hey, come here. Let me show you something. You know, and so the book of Enoch starts, you know, with, with this narrative, this assumption that there are spiritual forces. They're real. The biblical reader is going to understand that and know that. And these spiritual forces, they're they, they can take on human form, and we see that throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures. We see them interact as uh, Gabriel interacts with Joseph and Mary. Uh, you know, you've got uh, these angels, fallen angels, who start teaching mankind how to do various things that God didn't really want them learning, at least not from them. And, and then we know from ancient history, from ancient mythology, that mankind uh, has worshipped a multitude of beings that had special power and special abilities and taught mankind various things and then lorded it over. And that these beings were not uh, infinite, 
the way that the God of the Old Testament is infinite. In fact, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any God uh, from ancient times who was infinite, except for Yahweh God. Uh, you know, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, Lord of hosts, the creator God. All these other gods, they're limited. They have certain spheres, certain things that they are uh, really good at. You know, the God of war, the God of love, the God of forges, the God of the harvest, the God of fertility. They, they have certain spheres over which they are particularly good at. And, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you imagine maybe a little bit of a picture of it. You know, in, in American politics, we've got the Department of Defense. So you've got a secretary of defense, Mattis. You know, and I'm sure his fans, and there are many, many of them, and I think he's cool, but my brother, who, who is a, a Marine, thinks very highly of uh, General Mad Dog Mattis. Uh, you know, he, he, you could have a Secretary of War in ancient mythology. You would have a God of War, so maybe Mattis would be the God of War. Uh, but I, I believe it's not you know, core theology where – you don't believe this you're not a christian but neither do i think that i am you know any any less of a christian if i do believe this but you have i think aries for instance uh probably a real being and whether he is actually one of the fallen angels that was kicked out of heaven or whether he's one of the offspring of fallen angels um, you know maybe that's where you know that those are the titans uh, in Greek mythology, and they have uh, their they have uh, equivalents in other mythologies as well that, that go by different names, but you can tell you can identify that they have a similar nature. They're they're elemental beings uh, that are the first ones that are that are spoken of as being uh, in existence, and they're the fathers and mothers of the gods and what have you. Uh, but you know, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, the, it says Genesis 6, 4, that in those days and also afterward, uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And so they took any of them that they would as wives and uh, got them pregnant. I'm paraphrasing now at this point. Got them pregnant. And that's where the giants came from. That's where the heroes of old came from. The mighty men of renown came from. And basically the offspring of these quote unquote sons of God, who are the angels, by the way, uh, the offspring of their unions with human women were special. They had a little bit of uh, human ability and nature, a little bit of the, you know, special power and, and authority and all that uh, of their angelic spiritual uh, parent father and uh, and then that's that's where the heroes come from that's where the giants come from that's where uh, I think that's where the gods come from in ancient mythologies it's all of a sudden you've got these people with special powers and they're stronger and they're faster and they're, you know, they have knowledge and insight from their parent. You know, if their if their parent was there 
as God was making the universe or if their parent was there as God was you know, saying, hey, this is what you're you're in charge of this element or this aspect of the physical universe or this part of creation or whatever. If they're privy to the mysteries of science and whatnot, and all of a sudden, you know, you have one saying, hey, you know, Zeus, you're, you're going to be here's here's how you throw lightning bolts and you're going to wow those mortals and you're going to lord it over them and they're going to worship you. They're going to build a temple to you. You'll require that because that's been part of our scheme from the beginning is to get mankind to worship us instead of worshiping the creator who is to be praised forever. Uh, the Lord Most High in, in the book of Enoch, in, uh, uh, in the book of Genesis where you've got Noah uh, coming into the picture, uh, you know, and, and, and Noah was uh, a direct descendant of Enoch. Let's see if I can remember. I think Enoch is actually the father of Methuselah. Right? Nope, sorry. Enoch is the father of Irad, who's the father of Mahujael, who's the father of Methushel, who is the, oh, there's a different Enoch. So there's different Enochs. So there is one Enoch who's the son of Cain. That's a different Enoch. There's also Adam and Eve having Seth. Seth is the father of Enosh, who's the father of Kenan, who's the father of Mahalalel, who's the father of Jared, who's the father of Enoch, who's the father of Methuselah, who's the, uh, the man who lived the longest in the biblical narrative. I think it was 967 years or something like that. Methuselah, father of Lamech, Lamech, the father of Noah. And then, you know, that's where our narrative picks up in Genesis 6. Because it says, you know, in the days of Noah, you know, God regretted that he had made man. The earth was just filled with violence. Then you, you skip over to Noah, or to, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Enoch, where it talks about uh, how these fallen angels had just corrupted mankind. They led them away into worshiping them, uh, gotten them sidetracked, gotten them into doing things that they really should not have been doing. And, uh, you know, depending on who you, you read and you listen to, what you take as credible, you know, maybe you've never thought about any of this stuff. Uh, you just skip over that on your way to uh, the New Testament. Uh, you don't really read the Old Testament. You don't think about it in supernatural terms. You don't think about these spiritual beings because it's just weird, right? It's kind of kind of creepy. Uh, but, you know, Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed and suitable. So that means even the parts that are talking about uh, fallen angels and demons. It means even the parts that are talking about giants, you know, in those days and also afterward, the sons of God <laughs> saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took any of them that they wanted as wives. Why does God tell us that? Why is that important? Why do we need to know that? 
why is it important that David uh, has a conflict with Goliath, a giant? Why is that significant? Why is it significant that there were giants in the land of Canaan when God sent them into the promised land to conquer it? Uh, now, you know, if there's a, a guy I'm, I'm friends with on Facebook, never met him, never talked with him, but I've watched a number of his YouTube videos. Is, uh, and he had a DVD series that a friend from work had uh, loaned to me. And I think he's a little bit eccentric sometimes. I'm not... Not we're not always on the same page, but he he brings up some really interesting topics. I, I find it very interesting, uh, a lot of food for thought. Um, but Ellie uh, Marzuli is his name, and you know he he talks about you know going to conferences, or talking with Christians, where they just want to insist that uh, you know the giants. And uh, the sons of God, the angels having uh, relations with human women and making babies, that that stuff all stopped a long time ago. God put an end to that. And then clearly also, I mean, you've got the flood, right? That's part of why God sends the flood, I think, is to wipe out this uh, demonic invasion you know, where the demons have uh, cohabited with, impregnated and, uh, and are in the process of trying to corrupt the human race. And so God sends a flood to wipe that out. Uh, you know, if you read ancient mythologies, you read about the giants, and uh, almost always the giants and the gods are bloodthirsty, murderous, capricious, cruel. They, in many cases, you know, especially the giants, they enjoy eating People, they enjoy violence for violence sake. They're just murderous. And then the heroes are defeating the giants. And that's why they're her heroic is because they're willing to stand up and fight the giant, even though they're no match for them physically. They're not strong, as strong as the giants. Uh, somebody needs to kill the giants because the giants are, are trying to eat up everyone and everything. They're just murderous and they're awful and evil. And so, you know, that's part of why uh, I believe God sends the flood. Uh, you know, in in the scriptures, it tells us in the last days, it will be as in the days of Noah. And what does that mean? You know, well, it means the earth will be filled with violence. But also, very plausibly, uh, it means that the Genesis 6-4 stuff uh, about the sons of God and the daughters of men and about giants in the land and about... Uh, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the book of Enoch, where you've got you know, God getting fed up with not having it anymore. Uh, these uh, demonic, uh, you know, what invasions uh, of human activity, uh, of you know, corrupting of society, of people, of families, etc. He's going to put a stop to it. Uh, L.A. Marzulli, he'll point out, you know, you can't just say that that stuff just all stopped, you know, with the flood, because you could. I mean, you, uh, that, that's what some people, they must not think about it very much before they say it, but, uh, you know, they say, well, God sent the flood, and so that wiped out everybody that, uh, you know, had been corrupted, except, you know, the only people that survived were Noah and his family, 
and the animals on the ark. And, uh, and so, you know, they were all um, uncorrupted, right? You've got a direct line. That's maybe part of why there is a genealogy, actually, in Genesis, because it's a direct, uncorrupted line. None of Noah's forefathers are these fallen angels, these uh, demonic beings that have been kicked out of heaven for joining uh, Lucifer's rebellion. Um, but, you know, it clearly says, Genesis 6-4, in those days and also afterward, there were giants in the land. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, you know, etc., etc. Also afterward means, uh, you know, you fast forward to uh, Israel in the promised land and the Philistines, the sea peoples. And you've got uh, Goliath and his brothers who are, are part of this army that is coming out arrayed against God's chosen people, the uh, children of Israel. You've got David squaring off against Goliath, who is a literal giant. He's a literal giant because he is uh, part of one of these people groups that inhabits that's that's also i mean for the same reason i believe personally it's the same reason that that god uh sent the flood in part because the earth was filled with violence you had a demonic insurgence uh that had corrupted mankind interbred with mankind was trying to ultimately prevent a fulfillment of the prophecy that god gives to adam and eve when he curses uh the, you know, mankind for for them having sinned. There's going to be a penalty. There's going to be a punishment. There's uh, going to be enmity. Uh, God promises that there's going to be a savior in the midst of that, and that that's, that savior is going to crush the head of the serpent. That is the seed that He promises, and so uh, the serpent and the demonic forces uh, they. They take all that very seriously, and that might be even part of why they try to come into the mix, interbreed with humanity, corrupt humanity, because they think if we corrupt humanity enough, then God will not uh, be able to come in to humanity. He's not going to choose to save them, corrupt them enough, he'll just destroy them, destroy uh, what has been created in his image, and then that will be a defeat for him, that's a victory for us. Etc. Etc. You know, you've got uh, I think similar reasons between God sending the flood to wipe out to wash away that corruption of the demonic uh, interbreeding, you know, demons, fallen angels, these spiritual beings interbreeding with humanity, corrupting it. So that, that's why God sends the flood, and I, I believe that's also why God gives very strict orders to the children of Israel that when they conquer this, that, or another place, and he doesn't say with all of the people groups, there are certain people groups where he says, when you conquer them, you take their towns, their villages, etc. Don't leave anybody alive. Uh, don't even take any of their livestock. Don't take any of their things. It's all corrupted. It's all evil. I think a reason for that is because 
it had all been infused with some kind of a, a demonic energy. It had all been twisted and corrupted. Uh, and so God says, just destroy it, wipe it out. Now, there's so much that can be said about this. A great deal more than I have time to say right now. Uh, I, I find that in opening up this topic, I could probably go for three or four episodes uh, because there's, such, there's just so much to say. But, you know, I, I taking my view, uh, which you can disagree with, and I, I welcome you too if you have a, a, a theory that uh, makes better sense of the evidence as a whole, uh, please share it with me. But uh, at least my theory what I believe is the case is that uh, that is why God says when, you know, the children of Israel take the promised land, they're supposed to put everyone and everything in certain places uh, to the sword is because God knows that these giants and, and the, the scouts, the spies who uh, go into the promised land. Uh, but when, when Moses uh, first leads the children of Israel out of bondage, 400 years of captivity, of slavery in Egypt. Uh, you know, they're on the outskirts of the promised land, and 12 spies are sent in to scout out, to take a kind of an assessment of the land and where are the cities, and how are they fortified, and then who lives there, and you know, all that. And what they find is uh, giants. There are giants in there, and we are like grasshoppers to them. And 10 of the spies say unequivocally, uh, we can't do this. And they despair, and they freak out, and they're ready to turn back. And two of the spies... Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can do this. Come on, guys. Like, If God has brought us this far, he brought us out of the grip of Egypt, surely he will give this land into our hands, and those giants aren't bigger than our God. If God has said for us to do this, then let's do it. Uh, Israel ends up listening to the ten instead of the two, which... Uh, as with many other things, uh, just goes to show you, you can't <laughs> assume that the majority opinion is going to be correct. Uh, very often, majority opinion just means that most of the idiots are on the same side and that there's, there's more idiots than there are sensible people. Uh, I, I, I don't believe uh, democracy is a wise way to go. Uh, republic, great. Okay, rule of law, great. Democracy, no, not when your society's full of stupid people, idiots. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, there's giants in the land. We're told that at the very beginning because the children of Israel side with the ten spies and say, "Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can't can't go in and take that." Uh, God says, "All right, well." Guess what? You guys are going to wander around in the desert for the next 40 years. How does that sound? Does that sound better? You know, you guys aren't going to be allowed. I will not give 
the promised land to this generation, this unbelieving, faithless generation. You guys are going to wander around in the desert until everybody who voted with those 10 is dead. You guys are going to die outside of the promised land, in the desert. And your children, I will give this land to your children. Ouch. Ouch. But I think it's significant that the land has giants in it. That God says once they do take it to put everybody to the sword. Uh, there is a corruption that has happened uh, because of that uh, interbreeding. And not just interbreeding, but but the, the, the spirituality, the, the pagan spirituality, which we read in other places. Uh, it compels the people to sacrifice their own children to the, uh, the demon gods of the promised land. Uh, God says, do not do that. Do not worship me the way that they worship their gods. And God gives the children of Israel a number of uh, peculiarities, ways that he wants them to be intentionally, deliberately, systematically different than the nations around them. So that they are set apart, so that it is absolutely 100% abundantly clear who their God is. Their God is not the same God as uh, the Philistines, as the Canaanites, as the Egyptians, whoever, fill in the blank. Their God is the creator God who is holy. He wants them to be holy as he is holy. And ultimately, too... You know, God makes this abundantly clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is true for us today as well. Even though he calls us to fight, he calls us to be faithful and to put on the whole armor of God. As Paul writes, it is God who fights for us, who gives us the strength to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now, if he, in his wisdom and goodness, calls to us like he does Gideon, mighty warrior, then we do well to answer that call and to not uh, dwell on potpourri and pastel colors and doilies. Mighty warrior. If God's called you a mighty warrior, why don't you act like one? Right? Start by recognizing that we are in a spiritual war. There are forces of darkness. Uh, that should be uh, much less uh, difficult to persuade Christians of as the world becomes more like it is. As you turn on the news, you see young people committing suicide, uh, being absolutely unhinged, coming to school, murdering one another in mass, filled with hate, filled with malice, filled with ignorance, uh, disrespectful, disobedient, cruel, self-absorbed. As we see that, it should not be a hard sell, uh, the truth that there's a spiritual war going on, that there is evil in the world. But also, you know, it shouldn't just be that we dwell on that, we despair, we say, oh, there's evil in the world. Shoot. Guess I'll just hide out. I'll, I'll build myself a little spiritual bunker and, and just wait for Jesus to come back. 
No, actually, uh, in Jesus' name, rebuke that. Put on the whole armor of God and get to work. Get to work. We have work to do. We must be about our Father's business and to submit to, to be cowed by, to run in fear of the demonic forces, this present darkness. Uh, that is to imply that those forces are stronger than our God. Just like the armies of Israel cowering in their tents, even Saul, who was king over them, cowering in his tent as well, uh, because they didn't want to go out and fight Goliath. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of his mocking and jeering of their God and them. It just like that was faithlessness. But just like David confronting Goliath in simplicity with what God had given him and trusting that God would give Goliath into his hand, that the battle belonged to the Lord, but that he would gird up his loins and he would step to the line, that that was faith. That was a testimony to his confidence in God, that God was going to win. He was stronger. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In Christ we've overcome, and we are more than conquerors. And God has given us a mission. He's given us things to do. So we should be about our Father's business. Put on the whole armor of God. And maybe, let's just think about it, maybe let's start decorating our churches like barracks, like castles. Just maybe. Think about it. In any event, that is all for this episode. I'd love to talk about this some more uh, in the future. Uh, approach the topic from a different angle. But uh, I'm going to leave it here for right now. Thank you for listening if you've made it this far. Uh, if you have any comments, observations, anything to add, uh, anything I said that maybe was not 100% correct, please find me on social media. Do a quick Google search. You can find me. I come right up. Uh, you can also email me at garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. God bless.